Welcome to this episode of the Infosys Knowledge Institute's podcast on all things AI, the AI interrogator. I'm Kate Bevan of the Infosys Knowledge Institute, and my guest today is Zoe Kleinman, who's one of the most senior technology journalists in the UK, as she's the BBC's technology editor. Um, she's been covering tech for a long time. And so, Zoe, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, you've been covering AI since before ChatGPT really sort of brought AI and generative AI specifically into some of the wider public consciousness. What are you seeing in your reporting of the AI space? I think it's been really fascinating to watch people's perception of AI, and probably I include my own in that, a sort of morph from the slightly quirky sci-fi, but not really real life part of, you know, of journalism into absolutely part of the bread and butter of news. You know, we're seeing AI stories in the healthcare and science and business and economics. It's becoming part of the fabric of everything. And ChatGPT has a lot to do with that. I think, you know, but we're talking just after its first birthday, prior to its launch. Most people had existed around AI for a long time. You know, it's been curating our social media feed, it's been deciding what we might want to watch next on video streaming platforms, that kind of thing, but we haven't actually really spoken to it before and had it talk back. And so I think for a lot of people, that's been a revelation. And it's also been interesting to see how accurately it mimics us. So I've been watching robots do things really badly since about 2009. And now they're doing things a lot less badly than they were. And equally, chatbots can be awful. And when they hallucinate or they just have a moment, they they spit out all kinds of rubbish. We know that. But when they do it well, they really do do it well. And it's interesting to see it become a companion almost for some people rather than something that they might enjoy reading about because it's mad and bonkers, but it's never actually going to be in their house with them. That's really interesting. The point also about leaping from sort of nerdy niche sci-fi to the real world. I'm thinking about how Google Photos will throw up pictures of my dad as a baby. I have a lot of family photos in my Google Photos and say, is this Simon Bevan? I find that just amazing and extraordinary. But also there seems to be a bit of a gold rush about this. Are you seeing a lot of startups bubbling up to offer AI products? And what do you think they're like? Oh, my goodness. I mean, the gravy train is in full swing, isn't it? There is so much money and power, I think, pouring into that particular space. And everybody wants a piece of that pie. I'm seeing a real mixture of things. There are some really clever ideas. There are some people working on some really cool stuff. Don't know how marketable some of it will be, but it's very interesting. And there were others who were just hopelessly kind of trying to cling on to that bandwagon. And I've sort of stopped doing it now, to be honest, Kate, but I used to get emails from people, you know, pitching to me their startup idea. And it would be, you know, the latest AI thing from blah. And, and I'd sort of reply, go, well, what about this is actually artificial intelligence? You know, what is it that you think makes this an AI pitch? And I would get tumbleweed <laughs> in reply nine times out of 10. That's part of the problem. I think AI had the communication problem and part of it is that there's so many people using it when they don't really mean it. And equally, there are also people who are kind of trying to hide their AI um, offering, I think. There's that going on as well. You know, we've got lots of companies, some very big, trying to not really tell us a lot about what they're doing. It's confusing the issue for people. I don't think that's helping. 
I think that also comes back to this the whole Wild West nature of it. It reminds me a bit actually of the early Metaverse days when everybody was absolutely sure the Metaverse was going to be the thing that was going to save us all. I was never sure about that. Neither was I, for the record. <laughs> I spent a lot of last year going, no, the Metaverse is nonsense, but there's some interesting technologies around it. With all this sort of sense that it's a bit of a Wild West with loads of startups popping up, are we ready for that? Do you think we've got regulation in place to cope with that? Absolutely not. The regulation is so interesting because I think what there is this time around is awareness of how difficult it is to regulate tech. I think everyone has learned from the social media disaster that came before, right? When these companies said, oh, leave us alone, we can regulate ourselves. You don't understand as your old politicians go away. And then we saw time and time again, these companies failing to do exactly that. And eventually governments and regulators had to step in and have admitted that they don't necessarily understand the beat. And, you know, in fairness, politicians are generalists, aren't they? I think that's not a new issue. I think it's becoming a more serious issue. I mean, when you've got, you know, Sam Altman testifying to US Congress, and you've got these lawmakers saying, we don't know if we're up to the job, we don't really understand it. That's quite an astonishing thing for the leader of the, you know, one of the biggest territories in the world to come out with. And, and also quite frightening, I think, to hear that from your people in charge. It's better to be transparent and honest about it and not to try and blag it because you can't blag it really. If you don't know what you're talking about, you can't really blag it in this space, can you? But I also think if it is your job to get your head around the staff, do it. Don't wait until you're in front of the world asking one of these leaders questions. Talk to them beforehand. You know, you, you can bring up Sam Altman and say, I want to understand AI. Come and talk to me. He will do that. He will come and talk to Joe Biden if that's what Joe Biden wants. Maybe he is. I, I kind of hope that he is. I feel like it is good that they are admitting it, but it's also kind of, like, it's one thing to admit it, but you know, what are you going to do about it? Let's see some action here. Let's see you making an effort to get your head around it. And I think, you know, what's been interesting to watch is how differently different territories are going about trying to regulate AI. And then you've got this sort of growing chorus of people saying, well, actually, it's not really a geographical thing, is it? We should have a, a UN-style regulator. The, the one I keep hearing is the International Climate Committee, uh, something like that, AI. And yet, on the other hand, you've got all these different territories, like, frantically coming up with their own rules. So what are we doing? What, you know, which way are we going here? That actually encourages me that they're saying we don't understand this, because I'm thinking of the social media hearings, but you, you covered them with Mark Zuckerberg, didn't you, in front of Congress? And they were asking questions that were naive, uninformed, and it sounded like they were trying to sound as they knew what they were talking about. I'm actually quite encouraged by the thought that politicians, lawmakers are going, we don't know enough about this. How could we learn more? I'm quite encouraged actually by the AI summit that was held here in the UK recently last month. Obviously, it attracted a certain amount of ridicule, not least for the way Rishi Sunak, the UK prime minister, interviewed Elon Musk in a way that no journalist would ever have interviewed Elon Musk. But are you encouraged by the thought that this stuff is actually being taken seriously, that things like the AI summit were happening and are going to continue to happen. So I was at the AI safety summit in Bletchley Park here in the UK. And everyone was quite sceptical about it. You know, why is the UK doing it? And what role can we play? I think they pulled it off. I think it was a really useful conversation to have. I'm not convinced that this Bletchley declaration really amounts to very much. It's great that everybody agreed that you need to do stuff, but like, come on then, what are you going to do? seems to me everyone's agreeing that we need regulation and everyone is agreeing that this stuff is potentially uh, threatening. But nobody seems to be quite agreed on which of those threats should be prioritized. 
And in my opinion, there are more immediate threats to everyday life, things like the enormous impact on the jobs market that's, that is already happening. That is a more immediate short-term threat, arguably, than the sort of killer robot scenario, which arguably is a threat, right? That is a possibility. I don't think we should rule out that either, but I would be more worried about not being able to feed my children next week at this stage. And I think for a lot of people, that is a concern. And the other thing that, that really troubled me was the lack of focus on data. And I spoke to Rishi Sunak's representatives who sort of put the summit together. They were the kind of figureheads of the summit. And they basically said to me, you know, data is really hard. Uh, it's very difficult to internationally collaborate on data. So we're not going to focus on that. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, data is at the absolute heart of this, that we all know the the adage, uh, rubbish in, rubbish out. If, it's, if this stuff isn't trained on decent data, then it's not going to be very good. And on the other hand, you've got lots of companies pulling up the drawbridge on their data, including my employer, the BBC, and saying, you know, actually, we pay for this. We pay for our journalists to create this. We don't want you to just scrape it and have it for free. So what's going to happen there? You know, if all the decent data is taken away, what is left? I think that's another priority that, that was missed. That said, it was the first one. We've got two more coming up, one in France and one in South Korea. Let's see how this evolves. I'm not writing it off yet. Really interesting point there about data. What We've recently finished um, a research project looking at how North American companies and now European companies are responding to some of the challenges of AI. And one of the things that has come out of the European report is that European companies are actually more confident about data. And our hypothesis on that is because of GDPR, you know, European companies just have more experience of handling data, making sure it's clean, making sure it's usable, making sure it's protected. So that sort of, to me, feels like an interesting sort of twist on how companies handle data. One other thing that struck me, though, is what do you think about the culture that the AI companies seem to have been born out of. And I'm thinking sort of the Silicon Valley VC culture, the effective altruist culture, where the founders set themselves up as great arbiters of what is good. Well, I think effective altruism is probably a podcast itself, isn't it? It's a very interesting and unusual belief system that's followed by a select few incredibly rich and powerful people. My slight fear about all of this is that we are kind of repeating what's come before, certainly in the West, which is very few, very wealthy US tech companies having all the power here. I keep hearing, I don't know what you think about this, Kate, but there's a growing concern about the lack of open source, um, not only in terms of AI itself not being open source, but also things like foundations. You know, those kind of, I guess, non-profits, right? But these kind of more socially orientated organisations, a bit like a sort of AI Wikipedia type thing, right? There doesn't seem to be that so much with AI. It seems to be very proprietary, very commercial. And a lot of people are saying, you know, that's a bit worrying, really, because if you're commercially driven for profit, then you're going to have different priorities. And while we still don't know what on earth happened with Sam Altman, you know, dramatically leaving and then dramatically going back to OpenAI, I think there were three main theories, weren't there? And one of them was OpenAI was set up as a non-profit, then it had a profit arm. I've heard 
stuff about how they want the profit arm to actually become more dominant. And was it that that divided the board? I mean, I don't know, right? This is speculation. I have to be honest with you. I don't know. But it's interesting, isn't it, that this is so commercially driven this time because it's expensive. Making AI is super expensive. You know, it's, let's not sugarcoat it. You do need millions of dollars and you need a lot of resources and a lot of infrastructure to do it. So it is hard to do it on the cheap. The arguments I hear against open sourcing it effectively are, you know, you can't have your own chatbot trained on internal corpuses of work which is, I think, an important point. But then there's also the problem of black box algorithms. Yeah, we should definitely return to this at some point because it's such an interesting conversation to have. I don't think we've got time to have it properly now. And then there's also the ideologically driven approach of everything should be open source. And that's not necessarily always the best. But as you say, you know, it costs an absolute fortune. And look at you know, look how much money NVIDIA is making from its GPU selling that. Yeah, there's no way some small open source, you've know, hand-knitted AI company could afford to do that. In the summer, I met a fantastic lady who, she and her partner are a, a tiny business based in Northern Ireland. And they're doing a, it's a kind of chatbot type thing that makes websites. And they're doing really well. They've won awards and it's, it is a small business. But for what it is, it's doing really well. And she really wants to push it on. But she said she just cannot get hold of the resources to do it. When I spoke to her, she'd been waiting five months for a grant to buy one GPU. And in that same week, Elon Musk had bought 5,000. And at that point, we didn't even know why. We didn't know about Grok. We knew it was obviously doing stuff, but we didn't know what. But anyway, her point was, how do you compete with the guy that's got 5,000 when you, you haven't even got one yet, right? And that is the real difference in this world between the have and the have-nots. Because as you say, you can't crochet a GPU. You've got to buy one. <laughs> But there's all the resources that takes up as well. You know, we haven't even started thinking about sustainability issues around AI. Yeah, I mean, that is significant. It's huge. It's very hard to quantify, I think, but uh, there's a researcher in the Netherlands who spends quite a lot of time looking at it. And uh, this is slightly putting your finger in the air, but bear with me. If things carry on as they are, if the AI industry continues to grow as it is, and if there is enough access to enough infrastructure for it to be able to do it, he calculated that the AI industry alone will be using as much electricity as a country the size of the Netherlands by 2027. Isn't that the stat, though, that was used about um, mining Bitcoin? Yeah, the Netherlands is the new Wales, isn't it? <laughs> if in doubt, compare it with the Netherlands. But I, I actually can believe that because I've been to data centres I went to a data centre to do some filming for the BBC and we walked down the normal server aisles, you know, and it was, I mean, it's loud, you know, it's like in a data centre, you can hear all the fans wearing. And then you get to the to the AI aisle where the, the servers with the big powerful GPUs are and it's like standing underneath an aeroplane. You can literally hear the difference, the current state of AI. Wow, that's amazing. From what you're seeing, what do you think is the current state of AI? Now, there's an open-ended question for you. I think it is growing extremely fast. I think it's where the money is. I think it's where the power is. I don't think it's going away. I think it is, I mean, in a way, it's like a movie, isn't it? You've got a battle of good and evil. You've got these enormous potential benefits. You know, people talk about helping find a cure for cancer or helping to create nuclear fusion. I mean, wow, how incredibly brilliant that would be. And on the other hand, you've got, oh yeah, but it might just control this and eventually destroy it. 
The stakes are so high. And what I like to see is people taking that seriously. I think, you know, I'm bringing it back to social media because I feel like that was a, the last sort of big tech revolution that we probably had, although it's not the same thing. But we didn't realise how powerful it was. We didn't realise how much it was going to disrupt people's brains, you know, how many problems it was going to cause. And I hope that we are being a lot more mindful of the potential impacts of these tools this time around. I just feel like we're in the middle of a revolution. And I think we're going to look back over these last 20 years. I don't know what we'll call it. Like, what would you think we'll call it? You know, historical periods, revolutions. We had the industrial revolution. What would it be? The AI revolution is a bit boring. I don't know. But, you know, this will be an era of something that history will look back on, I think, when everything changed. I always ask everybody, and we've touched on it already, do you think the AI is going to kill us all? I hope not. I think what's really interesting, ultimately, this tech is only as good as the people who are using it. And if people choose to misuse it and it works, then that will be probably quite catastrophic. I think, you know, a, a classic example of that in a way was this whole business with Sam Altman and OpenAI. Here you've got this remarkably wealthy tech company, really powerful, holding these incredible tools. I mean, one of the very few people with his hands on that actual wheel is Stan Waltman and he gets ousted and then there's absolute chaos and then he comes back and nobody knows why. Um, that was all completely human drama, wasn't it? It was nothing to do with the tech. I think as ever, if anything's going to destroy us, it's probably ourselves. That's a brilliant answer. Zoe Kleinman, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. The AI Interrogator is an Infosys Knowledge Institute production in collaboration with Infosys Topaz. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts and visit us on infosys.com slash IKI. The podcast was produced by Yulia Dabari and Christine Calhoun. Dode Bigley is our audio engineer. I'm Kate Bevan of the Infosys Knowledge Institute. Keep learning, keep sharing. Thank you.